Hey there, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Classic Gaming Brothers. I'm Seth. And I'm Zach. And we are the Classic Gaming Brothers. That's right. Right. We are the Classic Gaming Brothers. We have notes. We have a note from our producer. I got the note right here. Oh, you do? Okay, good. Yeah. He made photocopies, so we have multiple copies of the note just like scattered around. I I thought they were always on sticky notes. Yeah, he photocopied the sticky notes, which is weird uh, because it's like the full sheet of paper with the tiny sticky note in the corner. Well, so here's the deal. Uh in a previous episode, Zach made a comment about only eating beans that producer Doug bought for him. Uh, and Zach said that he was eating cold beans. And producer Doug said that we don't. Zach doesn't eat cold beans. He eats room temperature beans. And that is because they are in a can and we can't allow any open flames in his corner so they're not warm but they're also not cold now he did question whether or not this is a studio cult and we would say it's pretty much the temperature of the outdoors since it is vacant and uh we haven't turned the heat on nor have we turned on the air conditioning right now it's pretty comfortable though it is pretty it's it's nice it's balmy (laughs) that balmy it's a little human in my section oh (laughs) Anyway, that was our note from our producer. Uh, So thanks, Producer Doug. It's always good to get notes from Producer Doug. So starting off, uh, Seth, what have you been recently playing? Zach, recently I've been playing uh, Bioshock Infinite Burial at Sea Part 1. Very excited. This is, I would say, the penultimate Bioshock game. And then with Burial at Sea Part 2 being the ultimate Bioshock game. And then it's over. Until they make Bioshock 4. But then I'll be prepared because I'll have played it all. And I'll know all the twists. Burial at Sea was released in two parts, uh, 2013 and 2014. It's an expansion or follow-up to Bioshock Infinite, but instead it's set in the world of Rapture, which Rapture is in Bioshock 1 and Bioshock 2. Rapture is not in Bioshock Infinite. Bioshock Infinite takes place in Columbia. Bioshock takes place in 1958, and Bioshock Infinite takes place in 1912. Anyway, in Burial at Sea, uh, you play as a character from a previous Bioshock game to Burial at Sea, and it is somehow the character from Infinite, Booker DeWitt. Now, Booker is a private detective who meets up with a mysterious femme fatale Elizabeth and Elizabeth tasks Booker to tracking down a young girl named Sally who went missing in the Fontaine department store and as always as we know Frank Fontaine he's a great man now this Frank Fontaine's department store is actually an abandoned section of rapture that was sunk to the bottomer of the sea (laughs) yeah it's just a little lower than the rest of the bottom of the sea I guess yeah, but in fact, Andrew Ryan made Lower Sea and then put put Frank Fontaine's <laughs> department store there because Andrew Ryan does not like Frank Fontaine 
at all. He hates that guy. <laughs> he really hates Frank Fontaine, and Frank Fontaine really hates Andrew Ryan. It's pretty much the underlying current of at least Bioshock 1 and also Bioshock uh, Burial at Sea. And actually, there's parts of it in Bioshock 2, because um, at some point in time, Andrew Ryan makes Front Fontaine's department store into a prison, which you get to experience in Bioshock 2. Uh, so really, the hatred of Andrew Ryan and Frank Fontaine kind of permeates the series. Uh, so Bioshock Infinite Burial at Sea is no difference. So it's a Bioshock game. I like that it's Bioshock Infinite mechanics in Bioshock's world. So like there are plasmids, but they are drinkable like the Vigors. And they actually talk about it right in the beginning of the game where they're like plasmid. There's an advertisement where it says plasmids now drinkable. If you're afraid of needles, drink some plasmids. Yeah, I like that. (laughs) And you can hear audio diaries of the inventor of the plasmids meeting Jeremiah Fink. So Jeremiah Fink stole the idea of Vigors from his work on plasmids. And so then Suchan stole the ability to drink plasmids from Fink. Uh, So it's all talking about the stealing of different um, technologies. I don't know if the timing works out with that in-game conversation, but apparently it does. I guess this might also be Bioshock. Shock Infinite introduces a lot of different things to do with time and different like alternate type of dimensions. So this is most likely an alternate dimension where Booker's in uh, Rapture. So it's fun. I really enjoy the aesthetic of Infinite in Rapture. I really enjoy experiencing Rapture as like a regular city. I think that's probably my favorite part is like walking oh, yeah. so far has yeah. just been like walking around a regular Rapture with people and investigating like the the bars feeling, and, yeah, yeah. yeah feeling like alive which is nice because in bioshock one and two you never get that you get in bioshock two you get like glimpses of it in the flashback uh sequence with um delta but it, you don't get it otherwise like this is the first time it's playable to walk around like rapture as andrew ryan intended it to be yep. yeah and you can meet sandra cohen yep and he's just as crazy before the fall. And um, it, it's nice because it really shows that the fall of Rapture didn't make these people bad. <laughs> these people right, were yeah. just bad to begin with. And it also shows just how dark the world is. There's like a guy who's like prostituting people out. And he's like, what is, you know, Andrew Ryan says that morality is for the lesser man. And it's really presents you with like... A, a world that truly doesn't care about consequences or appearances, which is part of Bioshock's aesthetic as well. So Bioshock Infinite has a lot of people, not just enemies, but also civilians in it. And they brought that forward with Bioshock Burial at Sea. It is a known development thing with the original Bioshock that they weren't really good at making character models. Yeah, There's actually a conversation with developers. I think we talked about this in our Bioshock episode where Bridget Tenenbaum, who's arguably one of the more important people in Bioshock. You meet her in the original Bioshock and she's kept in shadows so you don't actually really get to see her face because she is, I think, the same model as somebody else. Um, yeah. Because they yeah. repeated a lot of the models. They do a really good job in Bioshock faking that and making it feel like everyone's unique. However, in Bioshock Infinite and thus the where Burial Sea is at, they really do add in some really good NPC quality yeah. graphics and, and quality dialogue. Well, there's all 
audio I feel like has always been great with Bioshock and audio is part of the reason why Bioshock is so great as well but anyway so yeah Bioshock Infinite Burial at Sea part one I believe they're pretty short games I don't think they're as long as the original games so I maybe I'll talk about part two soon but if not that then I will be done with Bioshock and I'll be so happy to put this series uh to bed as it were Zach what about you what have you been playing Seth recently I've been playing Sonic the Hedgehog 4 episode 2 originally released in 2012 Sonic the Hedgehog 4 episode 2 is the second part of the unfinished Sonic 4 trilogy uh, that Sega had planned. They actually officially canceled Sonic 4 Episode 3 shortly after the release of Episode 2. <laughs> the game is okay. It's not really great, but it does fix a lot of problems that were present in Sonic the Hedgehog 4 Episode 1. Uh, for example, a lot of people complained about the physics. So they slightly fixed the physics. A lot of people complained that the level structure was kind of boring. So they fixed the level structure. And a lot of people complained that in Sonic the Hedgehog 4 Episode 1, all the levels were pretty much just the same levels as classic Sonic games with kind of a worse coat of paint. So they made original levels. You know, they did the bare minimum, which for Sega back in the 2012, that's a lot for them. Uh, they also added Tails, so you get to play with Tails. The game's physics are still not perfect. And ultimately, that's probably where the game falls short. And also is why a lot of fans, myself included, don't really consider Sonic the Hedgehog 4 to be like a true Sonic 4, um, which sounds silly. But when Sonic Mania came out in 2017, uh, we got to see what it was like for someone to put the effort in to make a game that felt true to the classic Sonic formula. And that was through Christian Whitehead using his retro engine to create Sonic Mania. And Sonic Mania is a great game. And I consider Sonic Mania to be more of a Sonic 4 than Sonic 4. However, I was in the mood to play Sonic because it was recently announced that a new 2D, 3D-ish style game is coming out called Sonic Superstars, which has kind of, it's 2D gameplay, but with like a 3D aesthetic. So all the graphics and stuff are 3D models, but in a 2D plane. But Sonic Superstars is based on the demos people have played. The demo hasn't been publicly available yet, but people have gotten their hands on it during a couple of uh, recent game shows that they did. Um, but people said that it feels like Sonic Mania, but with 3D graphics, basically. And they say it plays great. So I'm super excited for Sonic Superstars. And I kind of just wanted to like get myself into a Sonic mood, I guess, because I'm so excited about Sonic Superstars. And to do that, I was playing Sonic 4 Episode 2, which is not the best way to get yourself into a Sonic mood. But what is these days? But yeah, Sonic Super. Superstars is supposed to be pretty cool. It's going to come out sometime during the fall of this year, and it will have local co-op multiplayer with drop-in drop-out up to four players so you can have four sonic characters running around on the screen <laughs> yeah that's what i've been recently playing in today's episode we're not talking about sonic or bioshock we're talking about a game that we've referenced i think in like the last three episodes in some form or another and that game is dragon quest yeah i'm very excited about this episode because dragon quest is is very popular not in america people like are aware of it here but it's certainly nowhere near as big as it is in japan which we'll get to how big it is in Japan when we talk more about the legacy of the game. But to start us off with the history, our story begins back in 1947, Hokkaido, Japan, when Yoshihiro Fukushima was born. In 1975, at the age of 28, Fukushima would start his own company called 
Idansha Boshuk Service Center in Tokyo. Idansha was intended to be a publishing company where they would put out various tabloids for real estate. By 1980, the company had formed a wholly owned subsidiary called Idansaya Fudosan, which was intended to be a real estate trade and brokerage firm, though they would rename the subsidiary to Idashan Systems in 1981. The next few years, they attempted to become a major chain throughout Japan. They really wanted to be the household name of real state trade and brokerage firms. However, they failed. And in 1982, Fukushima decided that he wanted to invest some money into the growing video game market, and he would name Idashan Systems to Enix Corporation. The name Enix being derived from the early computer ENIAC and the Phoenix from mythology. As the company didn't really have a solid place to start in the gaming market, considering their expertise were real estate and tabloids, what Fukushima did in lieu of like hiring on programmers immediately and getting them to work was he organized a competition called Enix Game Hobby Program Contest, and he advertised this competition in various computer and manga magazines, as he would have the influence to get in touch with these magazines, as he was a tabloid publisher. And one of those magazines that he published in was Weekly Shonen Jump, a manga magazine that is still published to this day, and I think is like one of the longest-running comic magazines out there. Like, it's just, it's just been running forever. With the contest, they offered a prize of one million yen, which was equivalent to about $10,000 USD in 1982, though with inflation it's actually more about 1.3 1.3 million yen in today's money, which is just under $10,000 USD. <laughs> wow. So, That's pretty cool. Yeah. That was back in the 80s? Yeah, back and in the 80s. And that just shows you Japan's economy is pretty, uh, there's not that much inflation, I guess. Now, some of the winners of this contest included Yuji Hori, who created the game Love Match Tennis, Kochi Nakamura, who created the game Door Door, and Kazuro Morita, who created the game Morita's Battlefield. Enix would publish all of these games for various Japanese PCs and the growing home console market. And now with this growing influx of cash that they had from these games, Hori, Nakamura, and Morita also began to expand. Nakamura would actually create an entirely new company called Chunsoft, uh, which Hori worked for a bit and helped develop the game, the Portopia Serial Murder Case. And Morita would establish Random House, which is unrelated to Penguin Random House, the American book publisher, and he would release his own games. Now, the Portopia Serial Murder Case is a fascinating little game. It's a murder mystery game that was heavily inspired by PC text adventures in the United States, uh, such as mystery house zork in the game you play as a detective who must investigate the apparent murder of a bank president who was found stabbed to death inside of a locker room or inside of a locked room oh that would be be even more exciting if he was in a locker room i know but the bank's locker room bum 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 now while porting the portopia serial murder case to the famicom hori and nakamura began to brainstorm the idea of developing a new role-playing game for the system to accommodate for the fact that the Famicom version of Portopia wasn't a standard text adventure, they needed to build out a new interface to accommodate for the limited controls of the Famicom system, which meant adding a dungeon-crawling area for the detective to explore. This is cool. This detective not only is going to find a bank guy who stabbed in a locker room, but he's going to do it in a dungeon. A locked room, not a locker room. I know. (laughs) (laughs) Now I just, I can't get like the Baldur's Gate Eye of Beholder game going to a locker room. Yeah. 
Yeah. I'm just picturing, like, the detective opening the door and just seeing, like, this dead naked man with the white towel strewn over him. I mean, that's how bank bank presidents can die there, too. I've watched enough Law & Order to know that. Now, adding this dungeon-crawling area would start to inspire Hori and ultimately give him the idea for a menu-based command system. This idea would slowly begin to flesh out and become what's now Dragon Quest. Uh, another inspiration to them was the game Wizardry, which Hori and Nakamura both had a chance to play at Macworld Conference and Expo. Not only did Wizardry help with the reworking they needed to do on Portopia, but it also inspired Hori through, through its visuals. Hori really wanted to bring the experience of Western RPGs to Japan. And I think we talked about this at one point in time when we talked we, we about... We did our JRPG JRPG episode, episode yeah. with Mike Case, infamous toy collector and Star Wars Cantina podcast host. We talked with him many years ago. And we, we talked about JRPGs and we talked about how Western RPGs influence JRPGs and JRPGs influence Western RPGs. And it's just a circle of RPGs all the way down. But yeah, so Hori really wanted to bring the experience of the Western RPG to Japan. I owned a copy of Wizardry at some point in time. That game was cool. It's a cool game. That and Ultima are like the definitive Western RPGs that are not part of like Forgotten Realms. Yeah, I remember if I'm recalling my memories correctly, there was like a map and you had like characters and they had some cool sound effects and you like walked across things. But yeah, Wizardry was fun. But I think actually by the wasn't there a bunch of Wizardries? Yeah. I think it was like Wizardry 8 or something that we were exposed to. Now, Western RPGs weren't completely unknown in Japan as games were often brought over to Japan through ports and translation. Now, understand that we're now still talking about the 80s, uh, so the internet was slow. Our planes were probably faster than they are today, <laughs> though. <laughs> when we were still trying to get faster, and then we realized if we went slow and filled it with people, we could make more money. Yeah. <laughs> but there wasn't uh, as... It, the world wasn't as globalized as it was today, um, where today getting ports and knowing about various different games um, are commonplace. Many developers develop their games from multiple markets. Um, there are still imports that, you know, with games that release solely in a particular market, but like it's not impossible for us to get them today. But in the 80s, it was a little more tough, but through ports and translations from fans, they were still able to get to know them. Yeah, well, fans and also just small distribution companies. I mean, there were distribution unlicensed companies. Distribution companies <laughs> and too. unlicensed ones, yeah, but there were companies in Japan porting things like, I don't know about Wizardry, but porting games like Wizardry to a Japanese audience for Japanese computers. And there were games that didn't have a lot of dialogue that could be ported easily. Yeah, yeah, 100%. And, yeah. and perhaps many of the times, the English game that we received was the Japanese game with a different title. Because there was zero translation required, like games like Mario. <laughs> so now, the Dragon Quest, Hori and Nakamura, those guys weren't the first people to think about this idea of having Western-inspired RPGs. That was already a genre in Japan, such as Black Onyx, which was developed by Hank Rogers, the same Hank Rogers, who would go on to introduce the world to Tetris. And Black Onyx is a, a Japanese game that was inspired by Western RPGs released in Japan. Now, the these games were often limited to PCs because it was easier to generally make RPGs on PCs. PCs, especially at this time, were the easiest thing to work on in regards to making games and 
it just complicated things when you wanted to make something for the console. However, Hori and Nakamura knew that whatever game they made, they wanted to simplify the gameplay to accommodate two buttons because they wanted to release it on the Famicom. And that's another thing. PCs had keyboards because you had to have an entire keyboard to write because PCs were also word processing units. So you had to have a lot of keys. The Nintendo Entertainment System, I think, has one, two, three, four, five keys, two of which are start and select then your A and B button, and then your D-pad. So you don't have a lot of button combinations on an original Nintendo. RPG games, especially like the gold box games in D&D that were coming around around the same time, they used all sorts of keys. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like they would be like, push the E key to do something, or you had to use your arrow keys to move Sometimes things. Sometimes it required a numpad. <laughs> and yeah, you needed the end key to get through the screens. I would say 90% of me playing a gold box D&D game is me figuring out the controls to get past the character creator yeah yeah however hori and nakamura knew this and they knew they were making it for the famicom once again the famicom very limited buttons so they were iterating on ideas to make it so that the game could be played with the limited buttons so development officially began in 1985 which is actually when our sister was born now hori and nakamura would be the designers joining them would be kochi sugiyama who composed the score and akira toriyama who was the art designer toriyama previously had already established himself as the creator of the manga series dragon ball which you know not that popular what's funny is when i first saw like the japanese art for dragon quest because they changed it when it came over to america i was like wow that art style looks so familiar and it's because akira toriyama draws all his characters the same they all look like dragon ball characters (laughs) he's just like i I just draw this goku looking character 16 (laughs) times (laughs) (laughs) and they pay me so much money sometimes i have to draw a little short character like gorilla now, one element that Hori wanted to make sure was emphasized was the storyline and the ability for characters to level up and get stronger. He also wanted to distance the game from RPG experiences that may be daunting to new players, like the kind that you find in Dungeons and Dragons games or even other Western RPGs. So like as Seth mentioned, in Western RPG games, you'd have every single key on your keyboard to guide you through the character creator. Hori didn't want that. He wanted you to boot up the game and start it. And so you had characters that were essentially blank slate but that would level up through progression in the game not necessarily through like dice roll mechanics and building out your stats and stuff like that like you didn't need to have a character that was like all charisma now the famicom was also ultimately picked over other systems due to the fact it was the most easily accessible for people everyone basically had a famicom so obviously you wanted to appeal to the widest audience they also decided not to make an arcade version of the game as they wanted players to not have to worry about spending money if they got a game over and give the players an opportunity to start from wherever they left off. Which props to them, but can you imagine a JRPG in an arcade cabinet? (laughs) Some of these games are like 40 hours long, just like shoved into an arcade cabinet. You know it would would kill people. (laughs) It would, yeah. They also had a plan to have the game feature multiple playable characters, but they had to scrap this idea and they ended up having only one playable character in order to save memory that was crucial for building games like this. Another way to increase a was that Hori implemented a way for the level ups to occur quickly at the beginning of the game. This was in order to ensure that players wouldn't be immediately turned off by having slow progression. So when you play Dragon Quest for the first time, you're going to get to like level four or five very quickly. Like I think when you kill one of the first enemies, you level up instantly. He wanted this because he didn't like the idea that in other RPGs, sometimes you had to kill waves and waves of enemies before you leveled up once. So he wanted players to feel 
feel like they were making progress. And this would also taper off, you know, the higher level you get, the slower it takes to level up so that there is a logical progression of the level structure. This he hoped would compensate for the learning curve that other RPGs often suffered from. Dragon Quest would also be open world, uh, so players could really traverse the entire map. While there are no physical barriers to prevent you from exploring, you may encounter stronger enemies in certain areas that would force you to backtrack to begin to build your character up. It's like when you get to a really far location in Pokemon and you're underleveled and the trainers just beat the crap out of you. Now, Dragon Quest would be released in May of 1986 in Japan. The localization of the game started soon after, but required some changes. One was the title. Dragon Quest was already a game in America, specifically a pen and paper RPG published by Simulations Publications. Due to this, the game would be renamed for the North American audience as Dragon Warrior. Other changes to the game included updating the graphics to allow for characters to face all directions and closer match Dragon Quest 2 and 3, which, by the time that the game was done being localized, were actually out. So they were already released, because it not only does it take a long time to localize games, but this is the era when they were just churning games out. <laughs> yeah. So they were churning games out, and it took them a while to localize. Uh, another change to the North American version was adding a battery backup, meaning that you were not required to write down a password to continue your progress, something that you did have to do in the Japanese version. That localized version of the North America would be released in 1989 for the NES. Now, the story of Dragon Quest involves you assuming the role of an unnamed hero who has arrived at Tintangil Castle. A guard at the castle tells you that a dragon has kidnapped the princess and you must go to save her. During your quest to save the princess, you discover an ancient tablet hidden inside a cave which outlines the steps you need to take in order to ultimately stop the Dragon Lord. Now, as a fun spoiler for the original game, you have the option to actually side with the Dragon Lord or to challenge him. And there's like alternate endings. I think if you side with the Dragon Lord, you're, I think there's in one version of the game, your character wakes up from a nightmare. <laughs> oh, that's fun. I like that. It's kind of like whether or not you um, decide to be good Revan or bad Revan. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, the game is a turn-based RPG. And like other turn-based RPGs, you must fight various enemies while also upgrading your characters in areas like hit points, magic points, and experience points. Enemies will drop items or gold, which you can use to to stock up your character in the various shops across the world you explore. There are also NPCs to talk to, and gameplay in Dragon Quest is kind of unique in that it consists of various windows that will appear on your screen. Um, the main window will display the enemy, and below the enemy is a descriptor box. It might say something like, a slime has approached, what do you do? And above the image window will be the command window, where you can choose to like fight, use your spells, run, or use an item. And then to the left is your stats. So it will tell you what your, you know, your hit points are, what your attack is, and um, what your magic points are. So you can keep track of that and um, ultimately, hopefully, win the fight against the slime. The slimes in Dragon Quest, by the way, are uh, like the symbol of Dragon Quest. They're, they're these like blue, they look like blue poop. Uh, <laughs> that's like the best way to describe them is they, they're like teardrop shaped blue characters with uh smiley faces and like a tongue that sticks out now seth uh tell me how did dragon quest do how did dragon quest do well the game sales started slow in fact 
the financial wizards over at Enix were actually concerned they were going to lose money on the project. Uh, they were like, wow, based on the sales trajectory and the amount of money we spent on this, we're forecasting a loss. Hori, though, was like, wait a minute. I have connections to some magazines. So I'm going to go back to Shonen Jump and, and write uh, some articles for them and they'll pr- publish them because they like me. So he wrote some articles in Shonen Jump to promote the game and sales started to rise and they went up very quickly and it's very possible that Hori saved at least commercial success at least as after the articles were out within the first six months one million copies were sold and in total before um, Dragon Quest 2 would come out uh, 1.5 million copies of the original version were sold in Japan. Dragon Quest 2 came out the next year so like within a year there were 1.5 mil. Now the North American version also didn't sell well at first and was projected in North America to be a commercial failure which is when you sell under the amount that you spent. However Nintendo Power would offer a subscription giveaway and this would help bolster the game sales. Uh, the game would go on to sell about 500,000 copies in the US and would be the third best-selling game in 1989, followed by Tetris and Super Mario Land. Later remakes of the game would also sell well, with the Super Famicom version, which is bundled with Dragon Quest II, selling 1.2 million copies in Japan. Uh, The series as a whole has sold incredibly well. The first three original Dragon Quest games sold a total of 14 million units across Japan and the United States, and in total, the entire series has sold approximately 85 million units and has made around... 5.4 5.4 billion with a B dollars. But there's a lot of them. So that's 5.4 billion dollars spread out across a right. pile a- of games. Across a pile of games across a long, long time. Um, and Dragon Quest does have a legacy. Uh, while it wasn't the first JRPG, Dragon Quest would ultimately define the genre as we know it. Not only did more games take heavy inspiration from Dragon Quest in the years to come, but it was also it established a lasting franchise. Uh, to date, there are 11 numbered titles in the Dragon Quest main series. The most recent one came out like two years ago, I think in 2021 outside of the main series there are spin-off titles uh there are six titles in the dragon quest monster series going to be seven as the most recent dragon quest monsters game was announced as of recording today there are four titles in the dragon quest mystery dungeon series three games in the slime series and 12 other spin-off games just various that don't follow any particular series right but they've made billions of dollars <laughs> yeah all collectively a a manga series called The Adventures of Dai was also released, along with a 1991 anime adaptation and a 2020 anime adaptation. And there was a CG anime film called Dragon Quest Your Story that was released in 2019. Now, we can't go an episode without talking about bootleg games. In the world of unlicensed games, the Chinese company Fushuo Waixing in China developed a demake of Dragon Quest VIII and released that on the Famicom. Waixing and another associated company called Union Bond would reuse the engine that they developed for Dragon Quest VIII, their version, for other titles, including a game called Titanic 1912, which is a JRPG based on the sinking of the RMS Titanic. Fun fact, there are three bootleg Titanic video games that were released on the Famicom. <laughs> One of them is a beat-em-up, uh, where you play as Jack or Rose from the movies. I wish there was a, a D-bake beat-em-up series of Titanic out of <laughs> time. Out of time. <laughs> 
was just thinking where, that. where you beat up Colonel Zidal. Man, if only we were good at animating 8-bit things, then we could make it. Now, in the world of licensed games, uh, the hero from Dragon Quest has also appeared in various things, including as a new character in Super Smash Brothers Ultimate. And he's just called Hero, which is always fun because you name him. So he doesn't like have a canon name. Uh, Hori, the you know developer, the creator of Dragon Quest, uh, became a household name in Japan. Uh, some people say that he's as familiar to Japanese audiences as Steven Spielberg is to the United States audiences. He is apparently more familiar to Japanese audiences than Shigeru Miyamoto, the creator of Super Mario Brothers. The series is so popular that there is a popular rumor that was actually confirmed to be true by series producer Yu Miyaki, which is that Dragon Quest games are not allowed to be released on weekdays. And to this date, it is the only game series in Japan that is released on Saturdays. This is due to the fact that when Dragon Quest 3 came out, so many kids skipped school to buy copies of the game that the police got involved and they had to contact Enix instead. Don't ever do this again. And in America, they would have said, try and stop us. <laughs> yeah. I, I just think this is such a fun rumor because I know there's there's all these rumors all the time about like video game stuff and how it affects the real world. Like the Space Invaders rumor, right? There's a rumor that Space Invaders caused a yen shortage in Japan, which many people dispute because the yen shortage was just happening at the same time. But like Dragon Quest is not allowed to come out on weekdays because school kids will just not go to school. I love that for them. That is great. And yeah, that is Dragon Quest. That is our Dragon Quest episode. Now let's get into our retro rewind so seth had me play lester the unlikely and i really wish he didn't released in 1994 by visual concepts for the super nintendo you play as lester who is without uh mincing many words a geek he is like wears a white button-down shirt he has like coke bottle glasses he has high-waisted pants he has converse he looks like a nerd he looks like the angry video game nerd actually lester is easily frightened and can barely walk back and forth sometimes while you're walking he just randomly will do a dance where he thrusts at the screen and you can't stop him. In fact, when you encounter your first enemy, a turtle, Lester will scream and run away from it without any control. You'll lose control of the character as Lester just runs away from a turtle. Apparently, later in the game, you become more confident, but I honestly couldn't get to that point because I died a couple of times because Lester takes fall damage and your first obstacle are things that you have to climb. So yeah, I, I, th I thought the game was bad and I hate it. I just, I hate Lester the Unlikely. Though GamePro gave it a four out of five, so maybe I'm wrong. Though, GamePro, I think, is wrong. Uh, next week, Seth, you can play Harley's Humongous Adventure for the Super Nintendo. Perfect. I'm looking forward to it. Uh, now, Zach had me play Micro Machines for the NES, which arguably is uh, much better than Lester the Unlikely, and came out for an older system. Um, now, it was uh, originally developed by Codemasters and published by Comerica for the Nintendo Entertainment System in 1991. It's themed around the old Galoob Micro Machine toys, and I... I just love the name of Galoob. I think they're a great toy company. Players race in a Mintrize uh, toy vehicle around various environments. And is, this is the first installment of the Micro Machine video game series. It plays like a top-down version of Pro-Am Racing for the, the Sega Genesis and Super Nintendo, which is an isometric racing game where you play as little remote control cars. This one you play as even smaller, farther away, Micro Machines. And you can play as different vehicles. You can play as a boat you can play as a car you can play as a jeep the tracks are also very unique 
environments that you would race micro machines like bathtubs or a desk with a bunch of crap on it and you have to avoid the obstacles such as the person's crap that they left on the desk like a notebook i played as the character spider who appears to be a man who's wearing a costume not a spider-man costume but just like a mask and appears to be doing so for no reason since there's other racers who are not in costume so that was fun and i did all right in the game i uh, qualified and i placed first on my first couple of races and then there are two buttons one the one button goes forward the other button goes back and my on my third race i pushed the wrong button so instead of racing off to be first i raced off to be last but uh, micro machine i think is a fun romp of racing you can actually do two-player co-op and so that is a good aspect so if you're interested in playing a micro machine racing game with some pretty good controls and a pretty fun gameplay with your friend boot up old micro machines for the nes um, i definitely think it holds up and zach you can play for next time a game I would like to call Shaq Fu for the Sega Genesis. Sweet. I actually have a copy of that, so I can just play it. Uh, play my copy. Anyway, that will do it for today's episode. If you have any memories about Dragon Quest that you would like to share, you can email us at classicgamingbrothers at gmail.com. Our website is classicgamingbrothers.com. We're on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Facebook and Instagram are Classic Gaming Brothers. Twitter is CG Brothers Pod. We can be found on all the various podcasting applications out there, such as Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Podbean, etc. And with that, Seth, do you have anything you would like to contribute? Don't play games like my brother. And don't play games like my brother. I've been Seth. And I've been Zach. And we've been the Classic Gaming Brothers. That's right. That.